We are a group of friends bound by our appreciation for liberty and good podcasting. Free-minded thinkers from all walks of life, our values come together with one accord to discuss the common culture and news of the day, along with whatever random crap is going on in our lives. Welcome to the Union of the Unknowns. And welcome to the latest thrilling episode of Unions. And uh, we have a small but perfectly formed cast of unknowns for you tonight. We have going from my top left on my screen, we have Kilthor. Would you like to say hello? Hello. And we have Jack Connector. Would you like to say hello? Hello. Hello. And hosted by me, Terry Canary, coming you coming to you from the Ireland, where we have kitchen covers behind me. Hooray! <laughs> um, so, Which is looking uh, great, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah, not no doors yet, but um, for our listeners, um, so I won't go into a full description of them because we're going to move on to our topic tonight, which is Kaczynski, um, better known perhaps Unabomber. Um, all because he died just two weeks ago, aged, uh, what was he, aged 80, I think, in prison, obviously, because he was given uh, eight consecutive life terms when he was arrested and convicted. And um, we'll come on to what he actually did a bit later on. I'm just going to give you a brief uh, biography that I've culled from Wikipedia and other sites. So uh, he was born in 1942. Um, he was uh, quite a brilliant man and a brilliant mathematician. And, and most people thought they were, he was possibly one of the most brilliant men they've ever met. That at the age of only 16, he went to Harvard to study mathematics. Uh, um, and he uh, graduated and got a master's. And then he was given a post at the University of Michigan. And he would also been off the University of California at Berkeley and the University of Chicago. Um, and uh, one of the professors who knew at uh, the University of Michigan, um, it wasn't enough to say that he was smart man I had ever seen. So he was very highly regarded. And he won prizes for his dissertations. Um, and then in 1967, he went to University of California at Berkeley, or Berkeley, um, they offered the job. And then out of the blue in 90s, he resigned, left uh, all his teaching posts, went off to live back with his parents for a couple of years, and in 1971, quit uh, his normal life completely and went to live uh, in the middle of nowhere in a cabin in the woods in uh, near Lincoln, Montana where he was living sort of completely off the grid. He just had a bicycle to get, um, and uh, I don't think he had any sort of mains electricity or mains water. He taught himself a lot of uh, survival skills and hunting skills, and he was basically living the life of a sort of totally isolated hermit, really. Uh, however, a lot of the people who, who lived around there said that wasn't particularly unusual for that area of Montana, because I guess, Montana probably attracts quite a lot of those sort of people. 
And he was kind in his anti-technology ideas at the time, which is why he wanted to get away from it all. And, and by all accounts, he was a bit of a loner, found it difficult to get on with people. Uh, there was an aspect of his time at Harvard that I'll come back to in a minute where he might have been involved in some MKUltra type experimentation, uh, which may have affected his ideas and, and the, his reasons for wanting to get away from it all. So um, I don't know. Anyone got any comments about that so far? Interesting guy. Uh, yeah, he sounds like an interesting guy. I mean, he was I just a real genius. A, I have I a, yeah, I don't know. I just have a shirt that I had gotten from um, Sam Tripoli's website that talked about the Unabomber. Let me see if I can grab it. I mean, um, sorry, I, yeah, carry on. Go ahead, Keel. I watched uh, the... Ted Kaczynski and uh, he had wasn't there something about his younger days he had some kind of familial trauma or something that they they sometimes he, point um, to yes uh, he was certainly very hostile towards his family later on and, and um, uh, the sort of conventional psychological explanation of, of what made him what he was was that he was a bit of a loner. He had he had a difficult childhood. And then he... Um, we'll talk in a bit about these experiments that they did on him while he was at Harvard. And bear in mind, he was only... You know, he was very young to go to Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it seems to me that... Um, uh, I've heard about a lot of these sort of young prodigies that go to university very early. Uh, and often they find it difficult to cope. And there's a quote from someone here that... It's on his Wikipedia page saying that, you know, it was, it was too early for him and he didn't cope with it very well because, you know, you've got to mix with these older people. Um, and, you know, a couple of years when you're 16 years old is, is actually quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Your development changes quite a lot between 16 and, and 18. So, uh, yeah, yeah I, imagine yeah, I think it was a difficult environment. It's probably not, uh, too far off to think that there's a between success in life and say early success in Hollywood, like a, you know those childhood actors, they always have they they have it's a struggle yeah. to you know create a, a stable emotional adulthood when you're when you're exposed to that kind of life at an early age and. I bet uh, that kind of works out, uh, at least in some degree, in any in any uh, career path. You know, if you're going to be a an amazing mathematician, and you you rise up through the school ranks quickly, ahead of ahead of all the other yeah. kids at your age, there's probably some effect to that as well. Negatively, yeah. I don't know. Um, they said that it was like a three-year study that he went through there at Harvard. And he said it was probably one of the worst experiences of his life. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it, it's um, a bit from his Wikipedia page here was, was at school. Uh, they tested his IQ at 106, which uh, um, for people who don't know is very, very high indeed. Pretty good. 
Uh, and then they encourage him to skip his grade. And uh, he later described, it says he later described this as a pivotal event. Previously, he had socialized with his peers and was even the least skipping ahead of them. He felt he did not fit in with the older children who bullied him. And, that, and that's the problem when you try and track these people, you know, you've sort of sent them away from them. You know, they're friends, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here it says, um, after submitting their essays, each of the students were seated in front of bright lights wired to electrodes and subjected to what Murray himself described as vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive interrogations during which members of his research team would attack the student subjects, ideals, and beliefs as gleaned from the essays. The goal was to access the value of interrogation techniques used by law enforcement and national security agents in the field. All right, Terry, give us some background on what Jake is talking about here. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, so but, while, he, while he was at Harvard, um, there was this guy there, a psychologist, Henry Murray, who had worked with the OSS, which, uh, as many people would know, is the precursor of the CIA. He was working on sort of um, interrogation techniques and how to resist them. And in order to work out how to resist them, he had to, he, what he did is he subjected soldiers to very intense interrogations abuse, and abusive techniques. So he was trying to break them down, basically. And by all accounts, he succeeded in many cases. Uh, and this, he was sort of continuing this work. And the unfortunate Ted Kaczynski was one of his subjects. And as Jackie said, he was subjected to these very abusive um, experiments where they would track down your belief systems and uh, sort of attack the things you say. And, and you know, this this guy was, was young, remember, compared to a lot of his peers. And, uh, you know, tantamount to child abuse, you might say, really. And uh, a lot of people think there's no official connection, I think, with MKUltra, but a lot of people think that he might have been involved with MKUltra-type experiments. Uh, in case anyone doesn't know, that's the CIA sort of mind control program that was going on in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, I think, officially. Probably still going on, of course, but they don't admit to it anymore. But uh, so, yeah, that's it a was very much an ultra type thing. And it's had a, it had a profound effect on him. Wasn't the guy administering those uh, tests, uh, wasn't he connected to MKUltra officially? Like, didn't he work? At that program or something, I, I thought the documentary said that. Or was yeah, it just I, that he was? I, in I haven't found anything myself, but that's a direct link. A lot of people speculate that he he was connected to MK Ultra. This is the guy. Uh, what was he called? Murray, Henry Murray. Uh, so maybe someone can find the definitive link. And they working for the OSS, which then became the CIA. So. so and given, you know, most working on the OSS ended up in the CIA, I think it would be very likely that they would be tapping the same sort of people doing their similar experiments. In the so I think it's highly likely he was connected to MKUltra, but I haven't found anything, any sort of, like the, 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 the smoking gun to that. Yeah, I'm sure there's probably a lot of people that did do work with MKUltra directly whose names 
were never officially applied to any lists or were struck from the their their information was destroyed, you know, just as a security precaution, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I haven't got any files. Sorry, we lost them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a like, yeah. <laughs> Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Oh, emails. Huh? I don't know. Wait a minute. She deleted yeah. however many tens of thousands. Oh, I don't, I don't know, know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. But the, the people who were officially doing MKUltra experiments and the subjects thereof uh, describe exactly the same sort of experiments. He, he was doing exactly the same sort of thing that the CIA were doing with MKUltra. I think it's highly likely, really. So, you know, that would obviously have a big effect on him. You know, he was, was already sort of feeling a bit young guy with a lot of older um, peers who he's probably not, you know, getting on quite that well with. He's had a family life, he's had a big old school time, and then this happens to him. You know, it's just awful, really. Poor guy, you've got to feel sorry for him, really. Yeah, imagine if they wouldn't have, like, terrorized this man, like, the the things that he could have accomplished and the great things he could have done for the country. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll, uh, I'll pick up on his biography here. So remember, he's, he's quit his job in 1971, all his jobs. He's living in a cabin in the woods in Montana. And he, he's starting to develop this kind of anti- technology and anti-industrial revolution ideas, which you, you would later write down in, in books and famous manifesto. So uh, uh, one thing it, it talks about uh, on one website, I found that he was um, used to like sort of walking in the woods. He had sort of favorite spots. And then one day they'd driven a modern road through one of his favorite parts. Uh, and that was kind of a big turning point for him. He thought this is just terrible. He, you know, it sort of crystallizes his anti-modern um, society and anti-technology ideas. And then, so in 1965, he started doing all acts of sabotage in his local area. I think with the idea of trying to stop people like loggers and people who are trying to build churches and roads and things. And he was sort of setting little booby traps for them. And then uh, um, he obviously thought that wasn't quite enough. So in 1978, he sent uh, he, he sent out his first bomb. Uh, and he, he was called the Unabomber, by the way, because his targets seemed to be universities and airlines. And I find the airlines thing quite intriguing because he, uh, he has, doesn't write about airlines specifically. So I'm, I'm sort of intrigued as to why he, targeted them. I think he was targeting universities as sort of centers of the, this sort of indoctrination into the technological society. So you, you can kind of understand that a bit more. So, um, he ended up, uh, so, uh, yeah. Um, so between 1978 and 1995, he was sending bombs mainly seemingly to university, a few other places as well. There was a smoke bomb he put on a plane early on. Um, I say some other airlines were, were targeted. He killed uh, three people, injured 23, uh, and then his um, campaign came to an end in 1996. He was arrested following a tip-off by all people, by his brother, David. The Bible Council was also a very intelligent person, uh, and but possibly not quite 
in the genius level with his brother. Uh, it seems a bit strange that he was, uh, he'd sort of, um, tip off the police to his brother. But anyway, the, his brother, David recognized his writing style in the manifesto. Oh, I, I should say that after his last bomb in 1995, he wrote a letter to the Washington post and he said that I, I you know, I'm going to desist from terrorism if you publish my manifesto. Uh, and I'd like to talk a bit about his manifesto, Justin. but, uh, so they published his letter. There was a sort of bit of back and forth, um, Janet Reno, uh, interesting enough, uh, in this decision at the time, she was attorney general, um, and she was in favor of avoid, you know, further bloodshed. So they published manifesto, um, his brother, David recognized the writing style from this manifesto as being, uh, brother Ted tipped off the police and the FBI and uh, he was arrested in 1996, sentenced in 1998 to eight consecutive life terms. He died in prison uh, just two weeks ago at the age of 81. Right, and he, he's written, he, he continued to write books and he was a uh, correspondent. Uh, lots of people got interested in his work and wrote him letters and he was he would always write back. So, uh, um, yeah. Uh, what do we reckon? Tonight? I wonder. You said he was. <laughs> you said tale. he was writing. You said he was writing letters to other people, or people writing him letters, and he was writing back. Yeah. yeah. So I, I wonder if any of those letters were ever published, and I wonder if he ever talks about the regrets of like killing innocent people. That's a very good question. I, I don't ever see in anything about that. Um, there's quite a few sort of podcasters in our sort of uh field you know the people the sort of people we listen to who i believe have written to ted kaczynski and got replies back and i just can't remember who they are but he he did write to a lot, an awful lot of people and uh, quite a lot of people got very interested in his work because uh you know i i've read his manifesto and prior to this podcast i reread the first part again and uh the analysis he comes up with is very interesting and very insightful. And, um, I want to talk about a bit later on about his, um, breakdown of leftism as he saw it then bearing in mind, this was what 30 or 40 years ago. And, uh, he could be writing about what's happening now. It's, it's, he's very prescient as well. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, a sad tale. I mean, why do you think he was targeting airlines? That sort of funny you say that I was just about to say, maybe he saw air air travel as kind of like a peak of human uh, technological advancement, you know, and yeah, I'm maybe. sure he couldn't, he couldn't get down to, oh, bugger. Uh-oh. Oh, you he was frozen. I think he froze. <laughs> I heard him say bugger yeah. and then he froze. <laughs> yeah, buggers. So bugger, uh, on this... bugger surprised me. I thought that was very British. Uh, I didn't realize you guys said that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's back. Oh, no, we've lost okay. him altogether. Oh, what, what did you say after you said bugger, Keel? I, I didn't yeah, say anything. Said I just said I said bugger because I could sense, I could tell my connection was. Oh, closing down again. That's where you but, froze uh, right after that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was saying, you know, maybe oh. he couldn't, he couldn't figure out a way to send a bomb to NASA, 
you know, reliably. So he was targeting airline airlines or something instead. Yeah, maybe. Um, if I look down the, uh, with the Wikipedia article, has got green um, attacks here. Uh, so we have University, American Airlines, Flight 444, uh, the president of United Airlines, the University of Vanderbilt University, the University of California at Berkeley, where he used to work, the Boeing Company in Auburn, uh, University of Michigan, uh, Sacramento, who was that? Oh, a computer store owner, owner that was just death. So that was fortunate. You know, he's probably just running a, who knows, probably running just a little like, computer store. And then another computer at Salt Lake City, uh, then a geneticist, in California, uh, then Yale University science professor, um, an advertising executive at a company, presumably in New Jersey, who was killed, and uh, a timber industry lobbyist in Sacramento, California, who was also killed. And that was the last one in April 1995. So, yeah, it's sort of uh, odd selection of uh, you i mean in you know given what i said earlier you, you can sort of understand the timber guys uh, uh but yeah quite a lot of things in there so where was the last place that he had targeted when they caught him this was the guy in sacramento california the timber industry mm. lobbyist gilbert murray who was killed. Okay. Interestingly, he's called Murray. I don't know if he was in relation to Henry Murray. <laughs> okay. But it was um, so, if it's all right with you, talk about his manifesto, which is very interesting. Yeah, let's it go for it. It starts off very fast. Well, go ahead. I won't read out giant chunks of it because it would be a bit boring for our viewers and listeners. But it starts off very famously where he, he says... The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world, physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen this situation. It will certainly extend to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption, psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering, even in advanced countries. So yeah, what do you make of that? Hard to argue with any of that, I think. Yeah, you could say he was a bit of a Luddite, eh? <laughs> he was a bit of a Luddite, yeah. Well, uh, I'm, I'm pleased you're on, Kiel, because I think you will be much more... I mean, I, I'm kind of on the fence. I mean, obviously, technological thing enables us to talk over the internet like this, for example. But he's mm -hmm. undoubtedly right. It's caused a lot of problems. Because fundamentally, we're still, you know, you might say we're still monkeys in suits. And we're not really adapted to this form of lifestyle, which is very artificial. So what do you think? Uh, I've always, I mean, I didn't read his manifesto, but from what little bits and pieces I've heard, I've always kind of agreed with his philosophy. I mean, he's got, he's not wrong 
about any of his things. It's and like everybody who comments about him, I have the same kind of analysis that while his uh, his manifesto has a lot of truth in it, but his application of his philosophy probably isn't the best way to go about it. You know? <laughs> yes, I think we would agree I, with that. Yeah. I wonder if over the if years, you... like when. I wonder if over years when like the prisoners, when they sneak cell phones and stuff like that into prison and they have the iPads and everything, if that like just drove him nuts while he was locked up in prison where he could yeah, have been maybe. hidden away yeah. from all the technology, but still yeah. tortured by it. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he was sitting there in the... wonder if he went to the TV room at all. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Just shaking his head. He's sitting there at, at the at the lunch thing, you know, s scooping his uh, fruit salad, and then he's looking over, and there's a guy sitting there on a yeah. cell phone, and he's just like shaking. You know, <laughs> I didn't bomb enough of those jerkies. <laughs> uh, and he finishes off his uh, part about uh, the industrial society. He therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. So you can see where he's coming from with these bombs. Uh, I don't know if he was, presumably, he couldn't really think he was going to take down the whole system with his, with his bombs and attacks. He was just making a sort of political point. Mm -hmm. I don't think I haven't found out what work. his motivation was, actually. Yeah. And like you say, Jackie, whether he thought about the victims. Yeah, because you're, yeah, you may be targeting a system, but these innocent people who weren't intentionally doing anything to hurt him, you know, maybe like through those people, he saw the faces from the people that, you know, did the experiments and stuff like that. And they said in that article that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, which would make sense. But um, they said that they didn't think that the, um, experiment had anything to do with him, you know, with it, with him doing all that stuff. They said that you can't really correlate that. I'm like, really? I'm like, okay, well, if he's schizophrenic, uh, had these experiments, it's going to trigger him and it's going to trigger, you know, that to come out even more, I would think. Well, it was some years later. A couple of, you know, uh, yeah. After those experiments took place. Yeah, all that time. I found a couple of really interesting, very mainstream articles about him, which are actually sort of kind of sympathetic in many ways. One was in the Washington Post, believe it or not. And there's this really good one, Antic, written by uh, this guy, Alston Chase. I'll, I'll post it in the show notes. Uh, he obviously lived in Montana as well in a somewhat similar life is you know kind of was sympathetic to some extent from where he was coming he obviously didn't agree with all the bombings and everything but he, he kind of knew where he was coming from and and he was the guy who said we were talking about this just before we started to record keel but although he was living in the woods and he was all unkempt and rode a bicycle everywhere because he didn't believe he didn't believe in cars and he you know had no running water no main, elect main electricity this guy was saying, well, that, that wasn't unusual in that area of Montana. You know, there's loads of people like that. And that's why they go there, that sort of lifestyle. And although, uh, like you say, Jackie, there were some people who 
said, you know, he was schizophrenic. A lot of people said, no, no, he's just, he, he just, you know, thinks a bit differently. And um, this guy, I think it's Atlantic, he makes the point that um, all the, the people in the system are going to call him schizophrenic because he's against the system. All the, all the sort of lawyers and, uh, you know, the, the ones that were coming up in his trial are, are obviously going to have an opposite viewpoint of him because they benefit him from this technological society, so they think it's a good thing. Uh, and um, I believe he um, there was a sort of plea bargain negotiation and he, I think the lawyer wanted forward the idea uh, that he was schizophrenic, but the, the Fed prosecutors didn't want that. And um, so he, uh, they said, well, we won't go for the death sentence if you agree to plead guilty. So that's what he did in the end. Rather than fight it, he pled guilty to, to the charges that were put in front of him. And uh, that's why he wasn't given a death sentence. He was just given all these consecutive life imprisonment terms. Didn't he uh, fire his lawyer and s s represent himself at one point? Did he? That's that very much like the sort of thing he would do, doesn't it? Uh, very, very probably. I didn't yeah, see that, but yeah, you might be right. If, if I remember correctly, they wanted him to do the insanity plea, and he was like, "No, I'm not insane." And they had, you know, they argued back and forth, and he ended up firing his his legal team. Yeah, well, that's but, that's probably the argument we're talking about because yes, you're right. He, he didn't want to go with the insanity plea, but um. I think he did sort of buckle in the end and agreed to plead guilty on the base. He wouldn't get the death sentence. I wonder if he is really aware of how popular he is. I guess people, I guess since uh, people were writing him, he probably had that kind of contact with the outside world, but being, yeah, uh, he, you know, he gets a lot of letters. Yeah. But if he were, Isolating himself from technology, you'd think he would be kind of disconnected and not really I guess aware. Letters are okay. Mind you, pens are for it. Everything has to draw the line. You know, pens, technology, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's, I wonder what he would, I, would be the perfect, you know, because, you know, where, where, do, you, where, do, where do you draw the line? You know, no wheels, no, no furs to wrap yourself against, you know, the cold and. I, I I mean, in my opinion, just just like everything else, it's a make, give it a free market and let those who can adapt to it adapt, and those who can't adapt to it can't adapt. But I think that's probably yeah. Yeah. the way it's been throughout all of history. You know, the the horse and buggy went away, and all the horse and buggy companies got pissed off and probably tried to lobby the government to outlaw automobiles and. He was kind, so on and so forth. kind of tackling in his little area of Montana, though. Something I used to bring up a lot with Monica Perez on the propaganda report, other libertarians. It's, it's like the tragedy of the commons. Can you still hear me, by the way, you two? I think, uh, I'm not sure if the... Kiel, you still there? Uh, I think Kiel, he looks frozen again. There he he's back again. Right. Did you get any of what I was saying there? Nope. I missed All right. it. It's, it's okay. It's recorded. Give him yeah. the highlight. 
Yeah. So I can have it too. I, I, no, I wanted to ask him a question because um, what he was sort of dealing with in his little area of Montana was something I ask a lot of libertarians, including Monica Perez of the Propaganda Report, our um, patroness, as it were. And uh, it's like um, the tragedy of the commons because how do you stop evil capitalists exploiting, you know, common natural areas. So he, he objected to someone building a road through that nice part of the woods that he liked. Uh, and I don't know who, who the prop, who it was property of, but property of some guy. And he said, you know, I'll sell it to build a road. And then everyone has to suffer the consequences of having this new bit of technology or a new building or whatever, you know, polluting the landscape maybe, and, you know, maybe the groundwater. How do you deal with that? Lawsuit. That would be the ideal solution. Except you're not yeah. going to get a, a straight uh, judge or, you know, it's not going to go well in, in modern society. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it uh, incentivizes you to get to know your local magistrate on a personal level, you know, just in case. Yeah. And the sheriff, if you've got a sheriff, are keen on sheriffs, they're quite good. Because they get voted in, don't they? So they're elected and they've got first line of defense. So um, I want to talk about his, uh, he talks uh, with uh, great, perspicacity about modern leftism uh and uh this is quite amazing stuff uh it's, it's the best part of his manifesto and it's uh it's very relevant today so uh the first thing he said well one of the first things he says the two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism we call feelings of inferiority and over socialization feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftism as a whole while over socialization is characteristic only of a modern leftism but this segment is highly influential <laughs> and uh he says by feelings of inferiority we mean not only inferiority feelings in the strict sense but spectrum of related traits low self-esteem feelings of powerlessness lessness depressive tendencies defeatism guilt safe help hatred etc we argue that modern leftists tend to have some such feelings, possibly less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. So what do you make? Wow, that's crazy. So he so he was saying like <laughs> leftism, crazy. like they're depressed and all that stuff, huh? Mm -hmm. And he says, um, uh, this tendency is pronounced minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups rights they defend. They are hypersensitive about the words used to designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms Negro orient chick for an African, an Asian, a disabled person or a woman originally had no derogatory connotations. Broad and chick were merely the feminine equivalents of guy, Jude, or fellow. The negative context of these terms by the activists themselves. Some animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion. 
Leftists and anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative. They should replace the word primitive by non-literate. <laughs> when did he Good write stuff. this again? Uh, I assume, I, I think he wrote it before 19, it was published in 1995 in this uh, Washington Post, uh, ask, <coughs> excuse me, when Washington Post agreed to publish his manifesto. But I think he probably wrote a lot of it beforehand. That's crazy because it's like nowadays when they want to replace like a homeless person with houseless or whatever they want to call Un it now. Unhoused unhoused yeah <laughs> yeah unhoused and it's like the whole thing of like if you can control people's speech then you can really kind of control the way that they think you know and um and he that's just crazy that he saw that even back then um when it wasn't as pronounced as it is today yeah. wasn't that yeah, uh, we talked about words um Excuse me. Wasn't that Noam Chomsky? <laughs> Excuse me. Noam Chomsky that uh, started that kind of. I don't know if he started the the idea of that, but he talked about it a lot, right? How how you know words are so important, and you have to change speech in order to do this or that, and I don't know. So he's partly responsible for this, is he, Noam Chomsky? That's what I'm suggesting, but I, I'm not so familiar with it but i i think that's what i've heard in the past he's a he's a strange guy isn't he i mean he's um he's sort of on you know he's on the ball about a few things but then he's just completely wacko about a lot of things he was real covidian for example mm -hmm. you, you know he was i think to the extent that he wanted to force people to get vaccinated That's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I read one of his books um, back and it was actually quite good. I think it was about, it was a sort of anti-war book, one of his anti-war things. So, um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> probably in favor of war now, of course, like most of them. <laughs> yeah, whatever happened to the anti, what happened the war protesters from the 60s and 70s. Oh, and they crazy. railed against... They railed against uh, yeah. George H. W. Bush when he was in the in the Gulf, and they railed against his son when he was in the Gulf, and <laughs> yeah. and now anyway, they all there, gave up. Was there anything else in the manifesto, Terrence, that you wanted to? No, oh, there's, there's, there's really loads of good stuff here. He talks, um, he talks about uh, political correctness. Political correctness has its strong university professors who are employment with comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper class families. <laughs> that's, that's pretty on the money, I think. <laughs> I think it's got, kind of uh, funny that he just notated as heterosexual. <laughs> that's, like, why yeah. would, I wonder what was well, significant yeah. about that. I think in my, I think his point is that um, you know he's right. A lot of these people are sort of white middle class, kind of normal normies really, and they, but yet they're trying to identify with all these repressed minorities and, and fight on their behalf, even though they've got not much in common with them really. Kind of like what um, Sam Tripoli talks about: white middle aged 
you know, house moms and stuff like that. <laughs> Absolutely. They feel like they want to go and out and do it. Even, even a commie uh -huh. Cho Guevara you nailed this ages ago because he, he talked about uh, middle-class people driving to the revolution in their mum's car or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then he, and then he's he got massacred a bunch of, uh, bunch of gays. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, I won't read out too much, much more. You've got many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak women, <laughs> defeated American Indians, repellent homosexuals, or otherwise inferior. <laughs> it's a bit more controversial, perhaps. Uh, the leftists in themselves feel that these groups are inferior, and I think that's very true. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings, but it's precisely because they do see these groups as inferior that they identify with their problems. And then uh, he rounds out this bit by saying, <coughs> excuse me, feminists are desperately anxious to prove women are as strong and capable as women, as men. Clearly, they are nagged by a fear that women may not be as strong and as capable as men. So there we go. I feel like Lots everybody has their strengths. Everybody has yeah, their strengths. Exactly. And I feel like a lot of times when, like, I can obviously say this as a woman that identifies as a woman and was born with a vagina um, that God gave me, uh, that as much as they want to try to say, you know, like all this women's lib stuff and all that, like there was back in the day, there was things that they definitely did to, to change the trajectory for women in general being able to vote and, you know, buy a house on their own and stuff like that. You know, those are all good things. But I don't feel that just because I was born with a vagina that I'm inferior to men. I feel like everybody has their qualities and stuff that they can add, you know, and do. And everybody has their strengths, even as individuals. Um you know, just God-born gifts and stuff like that. So I just think that's just so stupid. And a lot of people that feel like, you know, they're the ones that feel inferior. They're not, and they feel like just because they're a woman or whatever, that they're inferior. But I don't think that. I don't think, I don't think that because they're women, they're inferior to men, you know, because I don't think that about myself. Do you think that um, government programs designed to support perceived uh yeah because they're able to inflict fear they're able to have control they're able to help people not know who they are and love themselves they want them to sit here and defecate all over their own lives and in their minds in their own minds like every time you're saying something negative you're really kind of just defecating on yourself and and, and that's just disgusting and who, who should really should be doing that some people pay to have that happen to them. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. I totally, I, totally agree. I totally agree with you, Jackie. I think, you know, uh, men and women are different. They have different strengths and different weaknesses and different qualities. And let's, let's celebrate the difference. You know, it's, I think it would be, I've said this before on the pod, it would be terrible if we're all the same. I would hate women to be like men yeah. or men to be like women. We're different. You know, if I was uh, in a traumatic 
situation and, and wanted to, you know, maybe some counseling. Uh, I think I would like a, a woman to do it. If I was in a fire and I wanted someone to carry me out the building unconscious, I think I'd want a man to. Exactly. Now, if, if you went unconscious and you needed somebody to give you mouth to mouth, would you want a man or a woman to be doing well? <laughs> Whoever's qualified, right? Whoever's qualified. Yeah. I would want you to date Kiel because you're recently qualified in doing that. Yes. Oh, I'm congratulations, qualified certified. Kiel. Good crop certified. That's awesome. Good job. Kudos. If Peel was, if Peel, if Perm, I mixed both your names up. If Perm was here, he could use his clapping machine. <laughs> Yes, congratulations. It, I, it's uh, I said to Kiel at the time. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, I used to be qualified, but they keep changing the, the procedure. So um, I'd probably kill somebody yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's shockingly uh, not difficult to get Red Cross certified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have to work on the dummy? We did that. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, there yeah. was like an online portion and they give you these little quizzes that are not difficult. Although some of them, uh, I think it had more to do with the software behind the, like the, the test than it was the test itself. But uh, some of the questions were not, you know, accurate, but the, um, the then then after that we had a day when we all got together and uh there was an instructor in person and he had like a slideshow and we went over some of the concepts and then we did yeah we had these dummies and we had to do chest compressions and um breathing and stuff like that um and then we also practiced quote practiced with the uh the aeg the uh resuscitation electrode device that you see nowadays oh right oh no we we didn't do we didn't do that is that like um what they call it a defibrillator yeah 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 that's that's what it yeah. is so you you know in the movies you've got these paddles and you hold them down on somebody's chest and then you press the button and the guy goes you know, clear and they do all that stuff. So nowadays they have a little portable device that sits on a wall, like next to the first aid kit. And, um, you, there's like these little sticky pads and you place them on the, the bare skin of the person. And then the machine does all the work. So you, it tells you uh, if, if, it, if it needs to shock the person or not, cause it monitors the, uh, you know, it does like an electrocardio yeah, yeah. Sens sensor on it. And then if it needs to do a, a, a zap, it tells you. And then you go, you make sure everybody's clear. And then you press the button and then it zaps the body. And and then it and you just leave it on the whole time. And it monitors the heart rate and everything. And if it gets low again, it'll, act, it'll tell you, hold on, we got to zap them again. So it's kind of a very easy machine to operate. You just have to put the electrodes in the right place. So, uh, yeah. So this is interesting. This sort of touches on the subject we're talking about, isn't it? This sounds like a bit of technology that is 
undoubtedly a good thing. Uh, yeah. And yet on the other side of the coin, I saw uh, something um, like, um, uh, what would you call it, a Substack article that had been, you know, the guy had been talking to his nurse and um, that his nurse was telling him that, you know, she was worried a lot of the decisions they were making on the ward were kind of being done by AI. And she was sort of concerned mm. that they were getting a lot of things wrong because they weren't, you know, I think we, we talked about this. I, I listened to our um, podcast about the film review when we were talking about AI a lot. And um, maybe it will get really good in the end, but I don't really think we're there yet. And I don't think we're going to replace, you know, like doctors and nurses by AI because, uh, you know, they've, they've got all the, all the I don't think, I think it'd be difficult to put all that knowledge that's inside, you know, nurses and doctors AI system right now. Maybe eventually, but yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you always you always see these uh, sci-fi movies where they've got like a, a robotic medic or robotic doctor on board the sh the spaceship they're flying in, or they've got uh, like a device yeah. that you climb into that looks like a tanning bed, and it'll. Do it'll do your surgery and stuff yeah. for you. They've always got those sorts of devices and things. Seems like in the future, according to science fiction authors or movie makers, anyway, that the doctors will be obsolete. Even in Star Trek, they had a the, the hologram was a, was a doctor, and uh, instead yeah. of having a, yeah, a real, yeah. and I don't remember which which flavor of show that was. Maybe that was Voyager or something. I don't remember. I do. I, I do believe that that's what they are planning, uh, Big T Day, and uh, in many ways, I think the doctors are playing into their hands by because they're just following protocols blindly now. That's what happened during COVID. They were given these protocols to follow from on high, even if they didn't make sense, and a lot of them were just following them, and sometimes killing their patients. Often killing their patients, in my opinion. Yeah. So. Uh, and, you know, if, if you start to do that, you're just playing into their hands and you're going to be replaced by a robot eventually because you're not, you're not really using your human intelligence to solve problems. Yeah, I've got, I've been thinking about this a lot in the recent years because I don't go to the doctor a whole lot very often. And uh, my, uh, I've gone a few times recently and <clears throat> I've noticed that there's a, stark difference in the way that things are the, the way the process works compared to what it was just i don't know 10 years prior to that because before yeah. it seemed like i'd fill out a form with my contact information and then i'd go see a doctor and like just for a general physical maybe and he would ask me questions and i'd tell him what's bothering me and they'd do basic tests and that would be it but the last time i went in for a physical it wasn't like that at all it was like I went in, I filled out several sheets of questionnaires about your physical condition here, you know, just all over the place. Things that were very intrusive, I thought, that I didn't want to just file away into the system by default. And then when I went in to see the doctor, he asked me the exact same questions. And I'm thinking, first of all, I'm annoyed because I already filled out the sheet. And then secondly, this person isn't asking me questions based on what they know about me or 
there's not a conversation here. It's just they're checking stuff off of a list. And since then, I've come to learn that that list is dictated by the insurance companies based on, as far as I know, whatever the regulations say as dictated by, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services or whatever the hell handles that, you know, the Obamacare kind of government federal regulatory environment that exists now. So doctors are no longer working for their patients, really. They're they're working for the system. They're just part of this system. And you've got, on top of that, you've got these incentives that the insurance companies give to the doctors for diagnosing things and administering certain drugs and and applying certain procedures and that totally screws up the the entire uh concept of application of medicine like in practice there's there's now it's just you're just playing to whatever's going to make you the most money because there's a huge incentive there i mean you don't go yeah. You don't spend all this time and effort and money going through medical school to not make money after after the fact. You know, you go in because that's going to be your career and you want to help people, but you're going to make money doing it. And when the when you get out of school and the entire and your existence is based upon what the insurance companies are dictating to you because you can't accept patients that don't have insurance because whatever the hell or or Medicare and you don't want to deal with that. And it is, I feel, I feel bad for the doctors because they're stuck in this position and I feel bad for the patients because they're probably, you know, by and large are, are fine, but they're not getting the real kind of doctor attention and care that the way it used to be. And and it, it really bothers me. And I, I, me, of course, being me, I'm just going to blame the government for it. If it weren't for, uh, you know, passing legislation like Obamacare and things that regulations that force the insurance companies to do this and that, that creates this, you're, there's no longer any competition, really. You're just, if you're going to be an insurance company, you're going to be in the system and you're going to follow these rules and you're going to get some money because the subsidies and whatever. And so there's no... There's no market there and everybody works for the system and all the patients work for the system and there you have it. And then now you're just, you're just a single payer, you know, uh, you know, health, health uh, service from the UK or Canada or wherever. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people like that system, but me personally, I, I want, I want to have choice. I want to have option. I want there to be competition and that sort of system just cuts all that out. No, I, t- I totally agree. You, you want choice because the systems in Canada and the UK, for example, you know, total state, state systems have been totally captured. So, you know, you've got no choice and they're just going to follow these algorithms, basically protocols that have been given to them from online. And, and from what you were saying, it's not just money coming from insurance companies. You know, in COVID, it was effectively directly from the government uh, and they were maybe channeled through the insurance companies or being paid to big holes. And, and you, you know, we know that they were getting paid lots of money to follow protocols, patients, and were killing lots of patients, putting them on ventilators, for example, killing 
50% of their patients and put them on remdesivir, you know, when other effective treatments are available. Uh, and uh, no, it's a disaster. Medical system's gone badly off the rails. But good part about that is there's a significant in America of doctors breaking away from the system and setting up their own sort of small practices where they've, you know, got their own choice and they can actually be a doctor rather than just for algorithms, you know. Yeah, the, so, the uh, concierge uh, style uh, of, of medicine practices, I think it's becoming popular. I heard about it years ago, back before COVID, and I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and like, well, that sounds really expensive. Why would I pay, you know, extra per year for a doctor that when I don't have to? And now I, I kind of see the, the benefit, you know, you're going to get someone who's not just uh, strictly held to the the protocol set forth by the the system, you know. The CDC or somebody, yeah. I mean, uh, if I have a, had to go in the hospital now, I'd be, I'd be very worried. You know, I think they're very dangerous places because, you know, if they're going to just follow protocols that are dictated basically by Big Pharma, at the end of the day, then they're not going to be, you know, necessarily looking out for my best interests and they might kill yeah. me. So, yeah, well, I, when, uh, when the Delta variant was going around, which was 2021, I guess, uh, I, that's when I first caught COVID and it wasn't too bad. And I'm sure you've heard the story before, but I mean, one of the symptoms that I got was uh, trouble breathing. And that's something I've never had never experienced yeah. before. I don't have asthma. I've never had like uh, aller like harsh aller allergic reaction to anything. So I've never had to deal with that. And it wasn't terrible, but it wouldn't go away. And I, I started getting a little scared by it. I thought, well, if this gets worse, yeah. I'm not going to be anywhere near any sort of medical treatment. So I, you know, I ought to go to the hospital and get it checked out. So I went and drove myself to the hospital. And by the time I got there, I kind of felt fine, but I checked myself in anyway. And uh, <clears throat> actually had a pretty good experience. I was in my own room. Uh, they, they took lots of blood tests. They did a chest x-ray. They did monitored, you know, all the different, kind of things you monitor when you're in the hospital. And then the doctor came in at one point and you know, I was there for probably about three hours and he came in and said, you know, you don't have any pneumonia and you, everything looks fine. Uh, just, you know, go home and take some vitamins and you should be all right. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is the exact opposite of what I was expecting. You know, I was expecting, yeah, you know, oxygen and all sorts of wacky <laughs> things and, Oh, you, you have to, I they don't even remember them forcing me to wear a mask or anything when I was at least in my room. Wow, and I was just great. in there. I had, I had the TV on in there. I was working. It was during the day. I was working from home anyway, because we were doing well as I, cause I had the COVID. So I was just home, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't bad. And uh, uh, there, there weren't, there weren't stacks of people crowding the hallways. Like they said, you know, like, Oh, the, there's no, there's no room in these ERs and 
And so hospitals are overrun. And this yeah, is during was... this is during the time when that should have been happening. And this was a you know a, a big a big hospital in a in a populated area. So I mean there was no there was nothing like that. It was just I walked in and sat around for a while and left and it was fine. And in the meantime, I got, you know, all the types of tests you get for a physical. So I didn't have to go take a physical <laughs> later on, but wow, uh, that's really great. That's a really good experience. Yeah. So I guess hey. you get, um, uh, one good thing about America is you'll get more variations between, you know, from hospital to hospital in the UK. It's like kind of like a one size fits all service. And that's you know, what some I hospitals are slightly better like. than others, but basically they'll all be doing the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess we maybe ought to wrap up. I'm going to, um, um, so we think technology on a uh, good thing. Hey, Jackie's back. Oh, absolutely a good thing. Um, but of course, just like anything, it can be applied in bad ways. And that's just how you, there's no way to stop it. That's just how it goes in a, you know, free society. And how do we, uh, have you got any tips for how do we sort of adapt to, uh, there's something that the writer Alvin Toffler called future shock. He reckoned it was like culture shock. You, you, but because technology advances so rapidly, you know, like in 10 years time, you're in a completely different uh, kind of culture and situation with the technology the technological advances and it's it's very difficult to adapt to isn't it for us old we'll be enslaved guys. to the ai robots yeah that may be coming will we be enslaved to the ai robots that's the question yeah then we'll all want to go out and live in the middle of nowhere with no running water so we can get Might away from yeah assuming that that lifestyle has not been outlawed by then which is my my only uh, comment is that as long as we don't outlaw that stuff, because it's very easy to do so, if we give ourselves the option of disconnecting, of opting out from technology, then I think that that's enough because there's always going to be an element there to keep us grounded in reality as technology advances. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. If, if you've got the choice to opt in or opt out of, you know, technological society, then that's an ideal solution, isn't it really? And you, maybe you can just, if you're able to pick and choose the elements of the, that you like and reject the ones that you don't like, that would mm -hmm. be great. But we, we don't really want government from on high imposing these things on us. And they will and, do that. And making us in a state. Yeah. yeah. Good. So good philosophy to end up on. So I think we'll wrap up now. So, uh, Thank you for watching and listening, everyone. And um, I recommend you have a look at Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. What's it called? I've got it here. Uh, he's written a book or something called like Technology or something. Um, this version I've got is just called the Unabomber Man, a brilliant madman's essay on uh, something like technology or something. Um, and it's a very interesting read. The particular because he, he sort of sums up the problems of modern society very well and he, he's fantastic on leftists <laughs> it's very entertaining so uh but we don't recommend sending bombs to uh you know um, airlines and university offices you know 
I might give my public information advice on these podcasts from time to time. Uh, so listeners, don't don't be doing that. So uh, wrap up and uh, we'll say goodbye, shall we? And I hope just you can all join us again. Kill have you got our uh, contacts for how people might get in touch with us? This. Well, the easy, yeah, the easiest way is just to go to our website, unionoftheunknowns.com, and that'll have our email address and our Twitter uh, feed and phone number. We have a phone number that you can sign up for our newsletter, which is really awesome. You can there's a link to our Spotify uh, so, account, so you can su actually subscribe if you want and get bonus content that is not, not the same as our regular shows here. And we're also on Rockfin. You can see all of our stuff there as well. It's really cool. And you get all of our bonus content on Rockfin also. Yeah, and our newsletter goes out once a week on Wednesday mornings most of the times. So you don't have to worry about being bombarded. And if you want to be like to be reminded of the latest podcasts that have just gotten published that's a great way to to do that and in the future we'll be talking about giveaways and stuff like that as well not today though <laughs> <laughs> thank you terrence thank you for that that was amazing i really need to sign up for a newsletter i haven't done so yeah i've never just that terrible anyway um, edit that part don't out. Don't do as I do, listeners. We sign up immediately. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> thank you very much for listening, watching, enjoying the podcast in your own particular way. And uh, we hope to see you again soon on Union of the Unknowns. So, let's say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, physical media. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Union of the Unknowns. You can find new episodes every week on all your favorite podcasting networks.